This is Melissa Hale-Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, in a very exciting place today with an exciting person. We are at the Iroquois Indian Museum outside of Cobleskill with Perry Ground and... Thank you for having us here. Oh, well, thank you for having me as a part of your podcast. I would just like to start with what you were telling me. First, I'll describe the backdrop. We have behind us a beautiful quilt that was made by a member of the Mohawk Nation in support of the Freedom School, which was founded in Akwesasne in the 1970s, where Mohawk children could learn their culture and their language and... It's so appropriate because it's a way of telling stories, and Perry Ground is a storyteller par excellence. So can you just tell us a little about this museum? Sure. I've been involved with the museum since this facility opened in 1992. It was actually my first job right out of college. Uh, I went to Cornell University, and I knew I wanted to work in museums, so coming here to this museum where the focus was about contemporary Native people and Native arts. It was very appealing to me because one of the things I want to teach people, even now through my stories and the other education things that I do, I want to teach people that Native Americans still exist in the 21st century and that we are contemporary people, that we live like all the other human beings around us live here in the United States or Canada, um, and uh, that we are part of the 21st century like everybody else, but we have traditional ideas or artwork or things that might still be very important to us. So today I have on some of my traditional regalia or clothing because these things continue to be important to us today, even if I don't wear them every day. Uh, uh, but being a special day to share with you, well, I wanted to wear some of these things. Since you're wearing them, I hope you can tell us, and some people will be looking at the video, but lots mm-hmm. will just be listening. If you could describe, starting from the goose feathers on top sure. of your head, yeah. tell us what you're wearing. On my head, I have what we call in our language gustoa. Gustoa uh, simply means hat or headdress uh, is the translation. Mine is made with white goose feathers that cover uh, most of the headdress. Uh, the frame of the headdress is made from wood. And there are some pieces uh, underneath that you might not be able to see uh, that uh, encircle my head. And then there's a couple pieces that crisscross across my head. But then mine is covered up with white deer skin as well. And then the entire thing is covered with white goose feathers. And there's beautiful beadwork in the the front. The beadwork. You can see the turtles. That symbolizes my family. The person that made this for me is a Mohawk person from Akwesasne, that reservation that you mentioned. That's way up north in New York, up near Messina in Hogansburg, New York. Uh, But uh, he knew that I was, uh, or knows that I'm Turtle Clan, so that's why he added the turtle. But put the purple and white designs on, knowing that uh, I often wear uh, purple as the predominant color uh, in my regalia because purple is one of the colors of wampum. And wampum is very, very important to us. I have a wampum belt over here by my side. And you can see it's made from purple and white beads made clam. out of shell. Yep, that's clamshell beads. You got it. And uh, so so when he made this gustoa for me, he chose those colors and the white feathers uh, to, to match my And you have some eagle feathers on top. The eagle feathers on top of the gustoa indicate where I'm from. Uh, two feathers, like I have, indicate that a man is from Onondaga 
which is the type of native person that I am. And like I mentioned, I'm from the turtle clan or turtle family. That's a symbol for my family. But uh, the tribe I come from or nation is Onondaga. If I were Mohawk, like the person that made it for me, I'd have three feathers standing straight up. That's the traditional uh, symbol or feathering that Mohawk men wear. If I were Seneca, like my dad, that's the tribe he comes from, I would have only one feather standing straight up. And the Tuscaroras and the Cayugas and the Oneidas, they have different feathering, each tribe having their own feathering uh, to indicate uh, which tribe we are from. But... We were talking about contemporary people. Mm -hmm. This is a very contemporary tradition. We didn't start wearing feathers like this or in in these configurations until about the 1980s. Prior to that, you would see, and I see old pictures uh, of uh, uh, Native men. Uh, I saw a Tuscarora man with nine feathers pointing straight up on his gestoa because we didn't have a, a tradition so uh, what was years the ago. 1980s about that it made you develop this kind of code for identifying the different they're all members of the six nations yes yep Haudenosaunee. most Haudenosaunee is what we call ourselves many people call us Iroquois or Iroquois that's the name that was given to us about 400 years ago when the French people came across the ocean to North America uh, but we still identify ourselves as Haudenosaunee and those nations or tribes that we mentioned they all join together to live peacefully. I think over time through the 20th century, this kind of feathering was becoming normal, uh, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a standard. And then there were some images that were drawn uh, by uh, John Fadden, who is Mohawk, and uh, his father, uh, who ran the Six Nations Iroquois Museum up in Anchiota, New York. And they uh, made some posters and uh, drew some images that uh, showed this type of uh, feathering. And it kind of helped to codify it for everyone. Um, but I think through the 20th century, it was becoming somewhat standardized. But you, would, you can see pictures from the 1940s uh, that the feathering is different. Uh, and, and so it wasn't exactly codified. And even today, some people tell me, well, you have two eagle feathers standing straight up. But we thought Onondaga was one up and one down. And there are some Onondaga men that wear one eagle feather up and then one feather lying down. And so the rest of your regalia, Mm -hmm. um, tell us about that. Sure. I have a bone choker on. There's some deer bone. That's the big white bones on my choker. Uh, Mm -hmm. There are pieces of leather that are uh, strung through it, holding it all together. I have some pieces of wampum that are part of my choker as well, plus some silver beads. Now, we call this a choker. It's not choking me, of course. It's just a necklace or piece of uh, jewelry. Uh, the other necklace that I wear, uh, I wear all the time. Uh, this is made out of whalebone. Actually, it's a native Hawaiian or Polynesian symbol. Uh, I just liked it when I saw <laughs> it because uh, uh, Hawaii is a beautiful place. And, yeah. uh, but I saw this Polynesian symbol, and I always say I'm the big turtle and my daughter is the little turtle. Oh, that so I have that's on so there. Nice. So that's a so personal a symbol. That. Yeah, oh. that's a personal symbol that I wear. Uh, How but, old is um, your daughter? Uh, she's not so little anymore. She's uh, 19 and uh, about to start her second year at the Rochester Institute of Technology, oh, RIT. Good for her. Yeah. <laughs> well, did she grow up listening to you tell these stories? Is that something that was part of your family tradition? Well, it is now, but it was not part of our family tradition before me. Um, the only other speaker, per se, in my family was my great-grandfather, and he was a Methodist minister. And he was the minister at the Onondaga Methodist Church 
for about 70 years, uh, oh, wow. for a long time. He, ha- he literally helped to build the church with his bare hands. So uh, what and made then you there. pursue that? You had your degree from Cornell. You could mm-hmm. have done anything. Why did you choose to become a storyteller? Well, I knew I wanted to go into education of some type, and I wanted to teach about Native peoples. And uh, back in the 1980s when I was in school and then uh, graduating in the early 1990s, the attitudes towards Native people were shifting, and the ideas and the stereotypes were starting to crumble a little bit. So I wanted to help educate more about who we are in a contemporary sense, as we were talking about with the beautiful contemporary artwork here at the museum, part of why this was my first job out of college was that that was the focus of the museum. But I also wanted to show that we were late 20th century and now 21st century people um, that Uh, While some of the ideas that we have, our language, our songs, our dances, our stories that we tell, our religion for sure, that those are things that we still practice, that on a daily basis, we are like everyone else around us. You know, I am have some regalia on and I have some shorts on and some boat shoes, you know, and I drove my car here and I left my phone in the other room so it didn't disturb us and things like that, just as anyone else would do, uh, native or Mm non-native. And so to me, that was very important to try to teach about that. uh, And and it still is. In fact, that is a big part of what I do, even when I'm telling my stories. Uh, With the stories that I tell, I I often try to modernize them, use modern language that everyone can understand, and maybe um, elements of stories that 200 years ago, when people lived in longhouses or within a community that was very close-knit, you could say some things that everybody would understand. You could talk about living in the forest or walking through a path with no street lights or you know you know things like that how dark it was in the forest today people don't understand that be- because they know street lights mm-hmm. and they drive mm-hmm. places in their cars and so we have to modernize some of these stories uh, to make sure everybody understands the setting and the plot line and the the character development, all those things that go into storytelling. Um, there were elements, if you read old versions of some of these stories. Is that where you got them from, from reading these versions to recreate them? Because the way you tell them is also very contemporary. Yes. Anyone can go on the Internet and type in your name, <laughs> and it's just fascinating. You mesmerize these huge crowds, often of children, by jumping around the stage and even going into the audience and really... A very modern way of telling a story. So where where did you come up with the stories? Where were they from if they weren't from an oral tradition that was handed down in your family? Well, a lot of them are from the oral tradition. I've traveled around and worked with other storytellers. When I worked here at the Iroquois Museum, uh, I had the chance to uh, listen to and work with other storytellers. But I started when I was in college. And uh, while I was at Cornell, I worked with... uh, uh, then a young man, his name was uh, Stephen Fadden, uh, and the Fadden family, who we already mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. very well-known storytelling family uh, from the Six Nations Iroquois Museum, a fabulous, fabulous place to visit. That, that museum still exists. You can still go and visit my friend Dave, who's now the director of that museum, Dave Fadden, uh, who runs it now, uh, and, and learn about the Haudenosaunee. Fantastic, fantastic museum, just, just like here at the Iroquois Museum. But uh, Steve... Uh, 
had a very expressive style of storytelling as well. Lots of voices with his characters, lots of animal sounds, and he liked to move around quite a bit as well. And I thought it was very successful because it engaged the audience. It drew them into the story in ways that maybe story hour at the library doesn't always mm-hmm. engage us. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when I tell people that I'm a, a storyteller, that's the first image that they get. Someone in a rocking chair, maybe an older person, <laughs> reading a story out of a book and showing the pictures. And nothing against librarians, <laughs> mind you. Uh, but, um, but that it's, it's not as engaging or as exciting uh, as as live storytelling. So taking the cue from my friend Steve, and then I worked with another storyteller. Uh, her name was Marion Miller. She was a Seneca woman and very expressive with her voice, but didn't move around, didn't go into the audience, didn't engage people in the same ways as I saw Steve do, mm-hmm. uh, but I saw the success that she had. And then other storytellers that I would meet, I would look at their styles and my my style just developed organically over time. Well, it's and really a vibrant style. So do these stories come from, they're not all from the Onondaga tradition. They come from different traditions. Yes. And do you find commonalities in those traditions? Oh, very much so. Very much so. And that's one of the things I really enjoy about storytelling. Not only commonalities among the Haudenosaunee. And once we joined ourselves together, we say in our tradition about 1,000 years ago, we shared almost everything that we had or that we did. So if one tribe... These uh, were the five nations. The five nations, yeah. The Mohawk, the Oneida, the Onondagas, Cayugas, and Senecas. Those were the original five, later joined by the Tuscaroras, the Six Nation. Um, If food was scarce in one tribe, other tribes would contribute food to them for the benefit of the entire community or, or the entire nation. Our dances are all very much the same because we've shared them. Even today, we have sings where people make up new songs, but they'll travel from reservation to reservation to share their songs, maybe made up at Onondaga, but then performed at a sing among the Seneca people, and then the Seneca people sing that song too. So we share those types of uh, things and ideas uh, for the benefit of everyone because the more we practice these traditions, the more we hang on to who we are and the more we are able to express who we are. So storytelling, you might hear a story from... That interests me because okay. so often, like with the traditional narratives like Gilgamesh or Nal Saga, they were just for that culture. And you seem almost like an ambassador of your culture to the more Eurocentric culture around mm-hmm. you. You don't seem to have a lot of uh, bitterness or... Uh, anger mm-hmm. or I mean how do you get there <laughs> <laughs> well it takes time sometimes yeah. and um, I don't want to say that uh, I think everything is rosy uh, between our government to government relationships um, even now uh, like among the Senecas renegotiating their gaming compact with New York State uh, or when we look at things like the New York State throughway easements or how they are or are not fixing roads on reservations uh, there are some points of contention, and I, I wish there was a better relationship sometimes between our governments, uh, our traditional governments, and even within our own communities that you have people with uh, more traditional ideas, people maybe like myself with more progressive ideas, but we need to find a balance between everyone 
and that's for the benefit of the entire community. So with my storytelling, I do want to be an ambassador of Native people, and I do want to uh, perform a show, tell my stories in a way that engages people. When I was first becoming a storyteller and learning the stories from the different reservations, finding those commonalities Mm -hmm. like we were talking about a moment ago, for me it was a way to bring people in in a positive way. So if they saw my show and they applauded at the end and hopefully they laughed and had a good time and were engaged in the story because I tugged on their leg or I played with their hair or I sat in their lap or stood on their chair, all things I do during my shows, I I thought that it would be a more positive experience for people and they would go away from my show maybe saying, I want to learn more about Native Americans. That was fun. I had a good time. Wow, that was different than what I thought about Native Americans. And now I can approach that idea differently. So I was trying to be an ambassador in a very, very positive way. And and I still try to anytime that I do a show. Well, I have a question for you as an educator. One of the school districts we cover is, you can see it's on our front page, they're having a big (laughs) discussion now about um, how to be culturally sensitive in their education. Mm -hmm. And what they've done for a very long time as you are probably well aware, part of the New York State curriculum in fourth grade is learning about Native Americans. And they've had the kids build a replica longhouse Mm -hmm. and dress up like Native Americans. And I just, there was one segment where uh, I found on the internet, you would ask a child's question, answered a child's question about Halloween. Mm -hmm. The child had asked, you know, how can we historically dress up as an Indian? And you were very firm and very clear that you can't appropriate somebody else's culture. Yes. That um, that what you're wearing now is for you yes. because you are of the Onondaga Nation. Mm-hmm. But so what? what is a way that kids that aren't Native Americans can respectfully learn about this culture i mean that's a that's a very good question and uh the answer might be years long okay (laughs) so we'll try to give you the short one all right uh but about wearing uh outfits or trying to dress up and pretend to be those types of things like you could see in the wmht video that's uh, the Mm -hmm. local pbs they're the ones that that film that and um, I don't believe in that type of cultural appropriation. I don't think students are learning by dressing up. They're not pre- because they are pretending to be Onondaga. When I, I always tell people when I do my shows, when I wear my traditional clothing, I'm not pretending to be Onondaga. I am Onondaga. These are part of who I am. And as I was describing with the meaning on all the things that I'm wearing. I have my beaded turtle medallion. Mm -hmm. It's a symbol of my family. I have the two turtles. It's me and my daughter. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have the purple, which represents the wampum. I have the two-row wampum belt that symbolizes the peace and friendship between the people that came across the ocean and the Haudenosaunee from 400 years ago. So these ideas are very important to us. And some of these things have a lot of personal and cultural meaning today. Mm-hmm. So if someone puts these on pretending to be Onondaga, they just don't have the same meaning. But if they build a longhouse, a replica, 
to understand how difficult it was for people to do that kind of work or if they sample food that we might still make today that is part of our communities or they uh, watch videos of our dancing or watch videos of me telling stories maybe. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those are parts of our culture that we do want to share with everybody. But sometimes I'll get questions during my shows about our traditional religion and I very politely, I hope, but also very firmly uh, let people know that is not something that I'm willing to talk about. Within our communities, that is very private. Uh, there are things in our religion that I'm not supposed to know about because that's not my role in our community. So it would not be appropriate for me to go out and in a public show to say, well, let me tell you all about our religion. That's just not appropriate for me to do. So with the idea of... of culturally sensitive education Mm -hmm. i think it is about learning what those topics are that are uh, very appropriate to talk about uh, like songs stories our history uh, foods that we ate clothes that we wore but you don't need to put those clothes on and pretend to be from that tribe uh, to to learn about it you can see images of it you can come to the museum and experience it uh, Mm -hmm. like at our festival uh, things like that um When my daughter was in fourth grade here in New York State, uh, her teacher gave out Native American names. And I'm air quoting as I say that, of course. Uh, And so I had to call up the school and explain why that is not appropriate. Because our names come from our clans, from our families, and they have deep significance within our communities. And so it's not appropriate to pretend to have those names. And of course they were choosing things that would sound very stereotypical uh, of, you know, running yes, deer or a case yeah. of very bad stereotypes. Of very bad stereotypes. And yes, it's yes. a good thing to yeah. be aware of. I think we're almost out of time. That's what I'm being told, but could you just give us some closing thoughts and you've gestured several times to your turtle symbol and mentioned the mm-hmm. clan. If you could tell us just a little about as you say, in contemporary culture today, how the Klan still plays a role. Sure. Uh, We've had clans uh, forever. Clans come from our story of creation, and then they were reconstituted, I'll say, a little bit during our time of joining together in the Peacemaker story. So clans are very important to us. And it's one of the things I talk about with students, that this is something that we've always had. Some other things, like my cloth and silk ribbon shirt, we've only had for about 300 years. So that is more modern Mm -hmm. uh, and contemporary. Uh, But it was... A, a European product, but you've certainly adapted that we've it adapted. in a very... Absolutely. Yeah. And I talk about that when I, I go into schools. That's what I, This is what I do for a living. Yeah. I go into schools and I tell my stories and I talk about that adaptation with the silver or even the glass beads that my turtle medallion uh, are made out of. Uh, so I talk about that adaptation. Uh, but the idea of clans hasn't been adapted. If you were alive 600 years ago, you would have been from a clan. If you were alive 300 years ago, you would be from a clan. I'm alive today. I'm from the Turtle Clan. Uh, And we follow our mother's lineage. So my mother was from the Turtle Clan. Therefore, I am from the Turtle Clan. And I often tell students, you have to know what clan you're from because certain clans have certain jobs at certain times. So you need to know what family you are from to know what job to do and when you're supposed to do it. Historically, clans work together to grow food or to hunt or to 
build longhouses to live in. But today we still have funerary practices or our leaders are still selected from certain clans uh, or in our uh, religious ceremonies, certain clans might be tapped to lead certain songs or dances or to prepare the food as part of the ceremony. So you have to know what clan you're in to know if you're supposed to do that job and and when you're supposed to do it. Uh, So that is still an important concept uh, to us uh, within our home communities. Uh, My great-grandfather was a a chief, one of our leaders, and he was from the Eel clan. And so sometimes students will ask me, well, can you be a chief like your great-grandfather? And the answer is no. I can't have the same job that he had because I'm from the Turtle clan, and that was an Eel clan job. Could I be selected as a Turtle clan leader? I could be. I haven't been, but I could be. That's up to my clan mother, and she'll make that decision because that's her job. And so knowing that clan and knowing what your job is supposed to be is still very, very important to us. And it's those kinds of traditions that I try to teach about when I tell stories. Some of these stories might be very old and have ideas that have been important to us for a long time, but we can bring them forward to a a modern or contemporary setting and still enjoy them and still learn from them. Well, thank you. I have learned a lot, and I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. I hope your listeners enjoy it, and who knows, maybe we can do it again sometime. (laughs) Okay.